Just a reminder, in between worship services at 1020, we have a prayer gathering that will be right in the Goodwin rooms behind me. Steve Brown will lead that prayer time this morning. We're just praying for the Lord's direction and guidance with regards to the future land, property, facilities, whatever that might be. We're just praying for the Lord's help. It's a it's a, a very clear awareness that all of the elders have, that maybe you have as well, that uh, it is not the plans of men that succeed, it's the plans of God. And so we want to seek the Lord for his help. I'd ask you to turn this morning with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to read verse 16 through 20 this morning. Now, in our study last week, we left off at a really crucial moment. Moses is standing before a burning bush, and God is speaking to him. It says, the angel of the Lord spoke these things to him. And so there's these images for Moses of holiness, but also there's a clear sense of nearness. Though Moses is overcome by the meeting of the glory of God, he shields his face. It's, it's still the words of God that come to Moses that speak of tenderness that speak of compassion, that speak of a, of a good God who's ready to rescue his children who are so beloved to him. And so the text that we're about to read this morning is really a continuation of that meeting. And as you'll see, it begins with really specific instructions. So Exodus chapter 3, we'll read verse 16 through 22. And remember that this is God's word. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, they will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, this is your word. And so we pray that you would accompany its preaching with the ministry of your Spirit and grant to each of us the ears to hear what your Spirit would say to your church. And Father, as you know always, I'm an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick. I just pray that you would be willing to use such a crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article recently that spoke of the versatility of pagan gods. Versatile because you can, you can choose precisely the one that you need to implement in your moment of need. Now, every civilization 
that's, that worshiped false gods had their own, and they created them according to their perceived needs. But this article was basically saying, with all that we know and all the knowledge that you have at your fingertips, you can now pull up any pagan god you want from any civilization throughout history, and he or she can serve at your fingertips. The article didn't address the ongoing age-old problem of paganism, and that is that when men and women construct gods in their own image, they always bear all the frailties of mankind. And so they are always a combination of not nearly good enough and not entirely powerful enough. You, you expect those kinds of shortcomings when men and women create gods. They, they build them in their own image, and, and humans are inherently weak, so creation feels too large for them to handle. And everybody knows that men and women are prone to flaws of character. Even, even pagans recognize that not everybody is good all the time. Well, all of this makes Yahweh, the God of the Bible, superior in every way. And so Exodus chapter 3 would argue that a God that is versatile in the eyes of human beings is really not a God at all. He is simply a figment of the finite imagination. Yahweh. Exodus chapter 3, the great I am is an infinite eternal God who from the very essence of his holiness condescends to care for people. This is a God who is infinitely powerful and also continually and supremely good. Now, based on circumstances alone, you can imagine that Hebrew slaves in Egypt would have questioned God's power and they would have questioned his goodness. How could God be all-powerful if we are stuck under the reign of an earthly king? And how could this God be good if my conditions personally are so bad? Probably none of you have ever been forced to make bricks to build pyramids, but you do know what it feels like to wonder whether God is supremely powerful. Because you've looked at your circumstances and you've said, Lord, if you're really powerful, then why haven't you delivered me here? And probably there's some part of you, too, that's questioned the Lord's goodness at times. Lord, if you're, if you're really good, then how come I continue to struggle with this pain or this particular trial? Is the Lord somehow unwilling to do something good? Or is he not powerful enough to do anything good at all? Well, Exodus 3 says that God is always powerful and he's always good, which is why God governs all things for his glory and for your good. And so the text really reveals three places where God proclaims his power and goodness. God reigns over time, over strength, and over wealth. So first, God reigns over time. Uh, time is an essential element of God's declaration to Moses. Back in verse 6, the very first introduction that God made to Moses was this, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Further down in verse 13, Moses begins to wonder, well, what should I say if people ask me who you are? And he repeats himself, you tell them the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me. 
And then in verse 15, again, you say, my name is Yahweh. And then in verse 16, he again introduces himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's the one who sent me to you. This is a God who forever wants to be remembered this way. And even in that statement, the Lord explains himself as the God who stands outside of time and yet reigns and governs over all those who live and are bound by time. He says, I want to be known as a God whose name is forever. And up to this point, the Hebrew people were people of an oral tradition, and so they passed down stories of, of God's call to Abraham and his goodness to Isaac and to Jacob. They passed down stories of God's faithfulness to their forefathers. But that was a, that was a past work to people, at least from their perspective, who were now dead. What comfort is a God who has been good in the past to people who are now dead? If this is our God, the God of dead ancestors, then where is he now and why does any of this matter to us as we struggle and fight under the oppression of slavery? Jesus confronted the exact same question. Mark chapter 12, verse 26, the Sadducees, who were the theological skeptics of Jesus' day, come to him to ask a question about resurrection because they don't believe in resurrection. But the core of their question is really this. Does anything really matter beyond this life? I mean, isn't this all there is? And Jesus says to them, no. This isn't all there is. This is uh, there is a God who stands outside of time, and your soul is eternal. And then he, and then he comes back to Exodus three, and he says, "Didn't you read the passage about Moses at the burning bush, where God said, 'I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob'? And here's Moses's. In, I mean, here's Jesus's explanation of it. Is he simply the God of the dead?" No, you don't understand eternity at all. Our God is the God of the living, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. And then he says, I love this statement, he goes, you're quite wrong. That's what he says to the Sadducees, but it's not just the Sadducees, and it's not just Hebrews who are consumed in slavery by the present circumstances. How many of us find it hard When present circumstances are the very thing that consumes our sight. How many of us struggle when those present circumstances fail to give us any glimpse of a future and a hope? Maybe some of you are asking the exact same question today. I mean, is there really any comfort from a God who did things in the past to people who are just dead and then where is God and where is his goodness in the present in which I live well the Bible makes this really clear this God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God who did profound things in the past and he intends to do profound things in the future 
That's roughly where the Hebrew people are when you get to verse 16, spiritually. This is the reason that God says what he says to Moses. Take a look at it. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. Moses, you go to my people and you tell them that I know precisely what they're experiencing and I'm ready to act for their good and for my glory. I see three words in those verses wherein God seems to testify to his reign over time. Verse 16, God says, I have observed. Verse 17, I promise. Verse 17, again, I will bring you up. Let's start with verse 16. I have observed. This is God's declaration over all those experiences that the people of Israel have had in the past while they've been enslaved in Egypt. God says, I noticed it all. Back when God made a covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, you remember it, those torn animals. You remember that smoking fire pot, and you remember God's declaration. If I break this covenant, I'll die. If you break the covenant, well, I'll die for that too. But I wonder if you heard that story the same way the people of Israel would have heard it. They remember and think of Genesis 15, 13. Before any of this happened, God said to Abraham, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Immensely comforting to to know that God knew it beforehand and that he noticed that every single day of making bricks and every single day with someone lashing them on the back and every day of brutal service to Pharaoh, God knew it before it happened. And so that it is that God's reign over the past is evidenced in his foreknowledge. I've noticed that people are generally confused about what the Bible says about foreknowledge and predestination. I don't know how many times I heard a joke directed to me when I pastored a PCA church in a small town. And this is the way the joke would generally go. Hey, preacher, did you hear the one about the Presbyterian pastor who was walking down the sidewalk and he suddenly tripped over the curb? To which I would usually say, no, I haven't heard that one today. (laughs) Yeah. Preacher, when he fell, he got up and he dusted himself off and he said, whew, I'm glad that's over with. You're not laughing. You're not laughing and neither was I because for the most part, I didn't really understand the joke. Well, the joke was entirely based on the presumption The presumption that that this is the way foreknowledge works. That this is the way predestination works. You see, what they've done is they've confused God's foreknowledge with a sense of fatalism. Is Is that God's power over the past? That God has predetermined to give you some some moments where you stumble and fall? 
and you just have to get up and dust yourself off and move on? Bad stuff's coming? Just live through it? Well, that's really not at all what Genesis 15 describes. It's really nothing like what Exodus 3 describes. Here, God stamps his foreknowledge with a certainty that even when people sin against you, in the end, God will preserve and govern all things for his own glory and profoundly for the good of his own people. How different is that from a God who from all eternity decided to give you some curbs to trip over? It's so much greater than this. In the present, God says, I promise. And then he looks with an eye to the future. And he says, I will bring you up. I'm active in your past and in your present. And I'll be active in your future. And the bait is laid before them with this language, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God's way of saying this story is definitely going to have a happy ending because I reign over the future. As those who live inside time, and maybe Disney has helped us think this way, we presume that in this life, that's where we're going to taste the happy ending. But the Bible describes it greater than that. Oh, sure, the Lord gives us various foretastes of his kindness and goodness in this life. But sometimes the happy ending doesn't come in this life. But that does not mean that the Lord God has still not stamped his reign over time. Philip Ryken, who is now the president of Wheaton College, said it this way. He said, God entered human history to save sinners by dying on the cross and rising from the grave in real time and space. And Jesus is also the God of the present, who is watching over us and knows our suffering, including the ways that we are sinned against. And that Christ of the past and of the present is also the Christ of the future, who has promised not simply to save us from sin, but also to bring us all the way to glory. One day he says, I'm coming home and I will take you with me forever. God governs all things for his glory and your good. He reigns over time. God also reigns over strength. God told Moses, go to the elders of Israel and you tell them that I'm the God who reigns over time. And then once you tell them this, they will listen to you. Want to make a quick side note? Right? The Lord, in his kindness, is going to surround Moses with godly and wise elders. And we have in our own church godly and wise elders, older men. But we also have been gifted with older women who are godly and wise. And they help care for God's sheep and we must think of them as assisting in carrying us out of our old slavery. Verse 18, God says, those elders are going to listen to you. And then once they listen to you, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
the Exodus is about this. God saves a people for his own glory. So what the Lord has just given us is a preview of coming attractions. There is going to be a showdown between God and Pharaoh over the issue of glory and strength. Those who study ancient Egypt tell us that the Pharaohs spoke and they wrote about their own strength. And every time they did, they spoke of their strong arm or their mighty hand. Now, what we will learn in the coming weeks is that God is going to roll back the sleeve on Pharaoh's mighty arm. And he's going to reveal it as ordinary pride as basic self-worship. No human being on the face of the earth can bend Pharaoh's will. But God says, I will compel him to do precisely what I want him to do. And in the end, the strength of Yahweh, the eternal self-existent God of creation, will reign over the strength of the greatest and mightiest man on the face of the earth. If you know the story, you know that ultimately God intends to deliver his people, not for three days, but forever. So consequently, scholars have looked at this three-day proposal, and they have said, well, perhaps God is telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him a lie about three days. But you see, the elders and Moses are coming to Pharaoh, and they are going to ask him a spiritual question. Are you, king, willing to let Yahweh's people worship him as the one true God? God tells Moses on the front end, y'all go ask the question and the resounding answer from the earthly king who thinks that he is God is going to be an unwavering no. It's a really modest proposal. Could they just have three days? And it's going to be received in the negative. And that negative response is going to reveal how stubborn and prideful and fearful Pharaoh is. In fact, he's deeply hostile to God's glory. One commentator said it this way. Pharaoh was unwilling to give God even three days of glory. He wanted to keep all the glory to himself And he knew that if he granted this one simple request, that it would reveal that he, Pharaoh, had no glory at all. This is a king, a man who idolizes himself. So much so that his own pursuit of glory and the perception of power infringed on that which truly belongs to God. Friends, in your own life, You do not ever want to put yourself in a showdown with God over matters of glory and strength. I see four applications that pertain to God's reign over strength. The first one is this. If you're a business owner or you're a boss, and you can even think of this as a a parent's relationship to a child... Anytime that you have a voice of control or power over someone else's life or someone else's schedule, you need to make sure that those who are under your charge are given the opportunity to do on the Lord's day precisely what the Lord has called them to do. 
God calls his people to come and worship the living God and to rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, to simply get physical rest. You don't ever want to put yourself in a position as a boss with a showdown with God over matters of worship that really belong to him. Second application. For every little success that you enjoy in your own life, I'm not talking about like crossing the end zone and kneeling with a prayer pointing to heaven. I'm not talking about that kind of success. Most of us won't experience that. I'm talking about the little things that we want to pat ourselves on the back for. And I recognize, like you do, that most of that takes place in my own mind. That's where pride can swell. And inside your own mind and inside your own heart, you have a place that remembers that everything that you and I call success or failure is owing to God and to Christ. And it is all ultimately for his own glory. Third application, as it pertains to glory and strength. You have personal life choices every single day, every single moment. And I wonder if you make those decisions based on God's glory and his strength. In other words, your decisions to obey or disobey, your decision to be kind or rude, your decision to hold your tongue and guard your eyes or to be loose with all of those things. Are those kind of decisions really thought through with an eye towards the glory and strength of God? Some of you may even be in seasons of life where you are currently planning your future. You make sure that as you plan your future, you think through and make room for God's glory and strength. Finally, it would be impossible to look at this passage and not think about Pharaoh as a modern earthly ruler. And I think there is a temptation for all of us to look at rulers and authorities that have been placed over us, and we tend to see them as a mighty hand. This can happen if you like the leaders that are put in place or you do not like them. For instance, if my candidate is elected president, I tend to think that I am safe because he is in power. But then if another person is elected, then I think I may not be safe anymore. The prophet Daniel found himself in a much more precarious situation than any of us will find ourselves in. He was exiled in Babylon. And the king under whom he was called to serve has a dream. But the king won't tell anybody the dream because he wants to make sure that the wise men in the kingdom don't make up some foolishness and then he's left to try to decide who to believe. So he says, why don't you tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation? And none of the wise men can do that. So the king gets extremely angry. And so in his anger, he says, I'm going to put to death every wise man in Babylon. And the matter comes to Daniel and to his three friends. And Daniel and his friends begin to pray. And from this prayer, the Lord reveals the entire thing. And from that spot where his very own life is threatened, Daniel proclaims the words that we used in our call to worship this morning. 
to God belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel's point? This is true comfort. God always reigns over what you and I think of as strength. No matter how mighty or powerful or threatening the authorities seem over you, only God has a mighty hand and he governs all things for his glory and for your good. God reigns over time, God reigns over strength, and finally God reigns over wealth. Take a look at verse 21. He says, I'll I'll give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Again, a preview of coming attractions. God promises to defeat the Egyptians in such a way that the Hebrew slaves will leave their bondage and they'll simply ask their captors for gold and silver and clothes and bent under the hand of God, the captors will open their hands, which is precisely what the Lord told Abraham back in Genesis 15. God's covenant, torn flesh. God said to Abraham, your descendants will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And so in light of Genesis chapter 15, when this actually comes, you'll remember, won't you, this is really about divine justice. God's judgment on the sins of Egypt. Now there is plenty more judgment to come. But God will force the Egyptians to pay for the slavery that they have inflicted. And they will not even know it's happening. God said he was going to do this 400 years ago. Now he says, here's how it's going to happen. Usually when a nation is plundered of its wealth, it is a result of war, like battles and and blood and destruction. God says, I want you to notice how I exude my power over wealth. Hebrew women, you go ask the Egyptians for the things that you want. Pardon me. May I have that ring to compensate me for 400 years of slavery for my people? Could I I have that gold necklace? That thing is gorgeous, and I think it belongs to God. And I think it's going to be used in his tabernacle for worship. Ma'am, could I have that purple robe? That is going to be stunning when my daughter walks into the courts of the living and true God in the land of Canaan. I'm being facetious, of course, in the way I'm saying it, but God plunders the Egyptians by the women, by the women of Israel. I told you back in chapter 1, Pharaoh is immensely concerned about the men. It is the women that he needed to be concerned about all along. In his justice, God reigns over wealth so that his slaves, when they come out of Egypt, will leave with gold, silver, and clothing to furnish the tabernacle, which is, of course, the precursor to the temple. 
Do you see what's happening? God takes the wealth of the entire world, which rightly belongs to him, and he puts it in the hands of his people so that they will come and lay it at his feet in worship. In Ezra chapter 1, the people of Israel will return from captivity in Babylon, and the exact same thing happens again. The people of Israel come and they take from Babylon gold and silver and, and they bring it to refurnish the temple. And again, they lay God's wealth at his feet for his worship. There's two really clear applications to this. Number one, when the Lord causes you to work and causes you to receive wages... This is divine justice. You work, you earn wages. But a God who reigns over all things makes the scales of justice function in such a way that you prosper on his wealth. And so if he chooses to lavish you with treasures of this world, do not forget to take those treasures and lay them at the Lord's feet for worship, whether it's your tithes, whether it's your gifts to missions, whether it's a deacon's offering, which is collected for those with material needs in the church or in the denomination. God reigns over wealth in such a way that whatever God gives you, it is always intended to bring joy to you because it is a privilege for you to come and lay it back at his feet for worship. Finally, you recognize that for every physical picture in the Old Testament, there is a corresponding spiritual reality which is true in the New Testament and true beyond. When Jesus Christ freed you from bondage to sin and Satan, he lavished upon you these spiritual gifts. These gifts that you carry through this life as you walk in the freedom of a life with Christ. Psalm chapter 68 foretold this very thing. It's a spiritual truth in Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul picks it up in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8, and he uses it for that purpose. He says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I wonder if you recognize that at the cross, Jesus plundered whatever treasures Satan thought he held. And Jesus has given true wealth. He's given the gifts of his Holy Spirit to each one of us so that you and I might bring his treasures and lay them at the feet of our Lord for his glory. Time, strength, wealth. All of those main points this morning are really places where you and I are prone to fear. I'm really prone to wonder whether the Lord will be good in time and do what I want him to do when I hope he will do it. Strength. Sometimes I fear that the Lord doesn't have what it takes to overcome those things which feel so oppressive to me and wealth. I guess I better work harder. I guess I better just hope that somehow my financial condition will work out. 
Exodus chapter 3 makes a profound point. As if the Lord places his flag on the ground on the very spot where you and I are prone to fear. And there he says, God governs all things for his glory and your good. Let's pray.